Previously on Storyological. <laughs> I wonder if microphones,、uh, like a lot of vaguely technical industries, are disproportionately male. And when they test the microphone's response, right? They test it in a in an alto bass range. Yeah. Fuck you, audio industry. I mean, we did just imagine that,、yeah. but I do and love that is on point. That is on message. First, imagine what you think is wrong with someone, <laughs> and then fuck them over. That's what. That's how you do it. <laughs> It's one of my favorite things about Amelie, which I'll talk about in my review for Chris Reviews Everything Ever. That newsletter you can get if you support us on our Patreon at three dollars a month.、Uh-huh. And that thing about Amelie is that there's this one scene which she she's really sulking. Amelie, this girl in France, a bit dreamy. She's really sulking because somebody has pointed out to her that her dreaminess is a kind of cowardice,、mm-hmm. and she's watching TV in which Stalin. Is talking to some people, and she's imagining Stalin saying, "Well, I can do what I want. If I want to imagine this, I can imagine it." It's it's this great little funny, whimsical moment in the spirit of the film that is kind of getting at the way that that Amelie's imagination, her fancy, is a kind of tyrant, a dictator, telling her what kind of life she's allowed to live and what kind of life other people are allowed to live. She is certainly not.、Um... The kind of sweet, cute thing that she appears to be at first glance, like、so、<laughs> are any of us? <laughs> no. Well, like, it gets pretty dark as she、yeah. basically tortures the grocer by like breaking into his flat and then、uh, pranking him with changing like his mum's、uh, speed dial number to the psychoanalyst and putting salt in his whiskey and all, and him just generally changing tiny little things around his flat to make him. Consider the merits of his own sanity. You know, it also is an Amelie. Green tinted footage. Yes, green tinted footage. Also, skipping stones across a canal. Is that a thing that you'd wish you'd done? No, that's a thing I did because we lived across from the lake, and I skipped、uh-huh. stones, and I I loved it. I love the way、You're、Amelie does it. You're a champion skipper. Yeah, and I just realized recently that her skipping stones—that's like the thing that she does,、mm-hmm. and it is her life. To skip across the surface of things、oh. and never to sink too deep into any of it. Beautiful resonance. Beautiful. You can get you get more like that in my newsletter. <laughs> Chris reviews everything. Available to those who support Story Logical on Patreon at three dollars a month. Hit it. This is Story Logical, a podcast about amazing stories that we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud, and I'm Eiji Kosh. My pick for this week is *The Dancing Master* by Alexandra Kleeman. I discovered it in her collection *Intimations*, which came out in 2016. You can read it in that book if you like, or you can go to BuzzFeed. We'll put a link in the show notes. The story *The Dancing Master* is a story of Victor Talon, a sort of wild boy who wanders into town one day, all mottled hair and filthy cap, unable to give an account of himself. A common complaint. Or condition of many of Alexandra's characters, they often suffer from amnesia. They don't remember where they came from, or at the very least, <laughs> just they cannot. They've just been spawned from the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is、uh, that quote that you told me of Richard Ford's, where he said that he didn't think of characters as characters, but thought of them as histories.、Mm-hmm. A lot of Alexandra Kleeman's characters appear, yes, to have no history. Like they <laughs> come to life the moment she begins writing the story, and there is great deal of pleasure to me in that sense that. I am exactly with the author in the moment of the creation of this character. Right, it's like they're being inflated before our eyes. Um, right. So it's about him, 
Uh, and the man, the narrator of the story, who is the dancing master, who is challenged to prove to the world the cultivating power of dance by his rival, the braggart philosopher Portescue. <laughs> what an amazing life description. <laughs> and so, you know, we're, we're there as the dancing master attempts to instruct Victor to place his head and hands in the proper positions to move them about in the proper ways. All the while, the dancing master is clinging to this idea that the cultivation of the proper behavior will awaken in Victor the attributes of a more refined and proper soul. As he says at one point, it is in this manner that societies have caused their own advancement. By starving themselves of ready satisfactions, they stir their appetite for finer sustenance. Yeah, that's I bleeds into one of the things I wanted to say about this, which is about the idea of betterment and refinement and what does it mean to strive for something versus to tell somebody else what they should be striving for and that distinction I think this story kind of points out so beautifully like it reminded me of watching Marie Antoinette the other day the Sofia Coppola film where at one point Marie Antoinette and her brand new husband dance in the court and it's this very kind of, yeah, oh, from the, sadly, those of you listening cannot see Chris doing an impression of the dance. It was, it was perfect. Um, it's very, how should I describe it? Twiddly and distant and specific. And it is, in fact, twiddly winks. <laughs> Surprising that the uh, 18th century French were into twiddly winks, but. There you go. I like the idea that that might be called that game might be called Twiddly Winks. <laughs> um, yes, and so it's this incredibly um, what's it affected uh, creation of the core, and and in fact that's like the origin of ballet was in developing the courtiers developing entertainments for themselves, a dance of ever increasing kind of specificity and well, let's just say ridiculousness. It came out of boredom. Right, yeah. Being, being a courtier is boring. There's very little today to do except gossip with each other and argue and plan others' downfalls. And so, this, and so the the specifics of the way the dance must be performed is then then starts to become associated with the the hierarchy that exists in the culture, either of the court or of the country, and you you begin to see this attitude that the dancing master professes you know that the that the um the ability to perform beautiful movement is akin to being a kind of a beautiful and high person or a beautiful and uh, prosperous society and it's it's so kind of grotesque as a way of thinking now because of the way that he applies it to Victor this young feral child who comes into the village and 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 I guess you know there is probably in his time the dancing master might have been almost thought of as a reformer oh he's trying to upend the notion of who is noble and who is not he's trying to open that up but when you look at it now it's just so horribly paternalistic it's like I'm gonna upend the norms uh, by applying my expectations to you other person and the way Alexandra lays the story out and uses the sort of horrible paternal language around it she you can kind of feel the um the net 
aspects of the royal family being prepared for the guillotine, you know, and that kind of breakdown of the social hierarchy and structure. And and I love that she never overplays that, but she puts it right out there front and center. Yeah, I think uh, as you read a lot of Alexander Kleeman's stories, as one does, if you're reading a collection of her stories, you mm-hmm. just encounter one after another. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of her stories possess a language that one might call um, self-conscious. Mm-hmm. Or I might say that that's, that's more, let's just call that modernism. Modernism was self-conscious. All you're doing is think about yourself. And now, I don't know, maybe you could say a lot of prose is other conscious. It's just deeply conscious of other people in the world. Like there is um, this, this line from one of Alexandra's other stories called Fake Blood. There are times when any amount of being in the world is like rubbing bare skin against sandpaper, leaving you raw and pink and vulnerable to the next thing. At these times, I prefer to close my eyes and be still, still like the cups or candles or crackers on the table, nerveless and open. All right, that, that language is very different from the language in this story. Mm-hmm. The, this, this language, this, uh, this line from Fake Blood is a bit more literally vulnerable and open and confused and scared of the outside world, whereas the story, uh, The Dancing Master, has that language of Victorian times. It sounds very self-assured. Mm-hmm. It has lines uh, like this. Uh, he bends before a bramble of eyes, Convene to witness the degree to which bodily form may supplant a long history of mental formlessness. Um, and what, what I adore, though, is like what you were alluding to in the fact that the way Alexandra structures the story, the way this language is deployed, you can feel a bit of the fragility of it. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like while that language, the language from Dancing Master, can seem less vulnerable and self-conscious, it's, it's actually the exacting assuredness of that voice in Dancing Master feels like an indication of how fragile, how weak the the ego is. The, the idea that, in fact, I don't think the language of Victorian time, or what we think of as the language of Victorian time in books, is self-assured. I think it's world-assured. It's a kind of omnipotent voice that says, my self-assuredness comes from my certainty of how the world outside of me works. My certainty of how this story I believe in works. Mm. It's not really a belief in yourself. It's a belief in the social order that you live in. You know, when we're in digital product development, which is what I spend my day-to-day life doing. Yeah, I had, I had written down, Emma was probably going to bring up digital product development. <laughs> yeah. We talk about code uh, that is... Um, you know, flexible and scalable because it's been written in a way that, um, you know, can can take into account a lot of different ideas and concepts and ways of being deployed versus code that is brittle, where everything has been hard-coded. And that is what may, it made me think of when you were talking about that worldly assured voice. It is the voice that only accepts one way of being, that everything is hard-coded and nothing, nothing is parameterized. (laughs) I think the way, uh, I mean, her language and the way she deploys it, as you mentioned, is just so artful and careful and precise and beautiful. It, it floors me every time. It is the perfect match of the voice of that kind of Victorian or even older kind of attitude deployed with the kind of um, 
you know, specific vocabulary and words that are so fleshy and grotesque. They kind of inhabit your body in this really physical way. Um, it's so there's a quote here that is young Victor Talon wandered into our village three years and 37 days ago, wearing upon his head a flap of filthy linen made more vile by the matted teats of hair hung beneath it. When I read that, I'm like, <laughs> so I love how she uses the word flap to make it feel like this. The, it's like a scalp. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like his scalp might literally be kind of peeled back as he removes with along with the hat as he takes it off. And it's also full of you know, other physical animal language. People twitch and roil and gnaw and and you can kind of just... Uh, you can kind of just feel all of those sensations right through you down to in the final confrontation with Portescue. He tips the mug down his gullet. The blood pools in my face and I feel flush with sickly warmth. His face before me resembles a pile of meat arrayed in the shape of a grin. It's the total decomposition of a human being into, into its just fleshy component parts. That that kind of um, inhabitation of my physical self, I really relish. And she uses the word, uh, I think she describes him as slack-mouthed at one point. And I love the word, the sound of that word, slack. I love all those SL words. The, the kind of, the way they make my, I, I wrote down a list of my favorite words beginning with SL. Can I read them to you? In, um, indeed, yes. Please, please do. <laughs> yeah. Carry on with your bad self. Okay. Slack, slurry, slumped, slick, slit, slurp, slant, slash, slatten, sleaze, sleek, slippery, and slouch. And like all of those words, they make me kind of just want to roll up my tongue and eat it. It's fascinating to hear you talk about the way the language feels in your mouth. I feel like that is something, or that... That is something in the story. There is quite an emphasis on the way sound exists inside of one's mouth and how you make proper sounds and the fact that Victor is constantly stuffing things in his mouth right, so he can't right, speak. And that's what seemed as so <laughs> improper. Exactly. The dancing master is obsessed with preventing him putting things in his yeah. mouth, preventing him having that pleasure because as though to withhold or repress that pleasure is part of uh, improving his position in life. Mm. Um, I want to go back to the thing you were saying about betterment, because I think one of the really cool things that Alexandra does that makes the story work is that it is quite easy to take the position of of how we look at the dancing master and think this is this is not cool. I, you are training this person to be a quote better person with a rod. <laughs> that is your main teaching mechanism. I am not chill with this. Uh, yeah, but by having Portescue in the story, having him be an antagonist to the dancing master, uh, that in one way helps us have some pathos and, and empathy with the dancing master because Portescue does not seem like an awesome human being. Uh, granted, we're in the dancing master's point of view, but that's just how it works. That's cool. Um, but also, I enjoy keeping in mind that uh, w while you're reading the dancing master, uh, you, you might remember that you're in the hands of an author, of someone 
who is the ultimate dancing master, who is practicing her art on these fragments of her imagination, inflicting on them and on us, and perhaps herself, some amount of pain in the, the performance of a dance of words, all of these civilized gestures of sounds, all of these literary techniques, presumably to awaken some feeling in us, maybe of refinement or, or empathy. I think, I think about how I care about the dancing master. I feel a little sorry for him. I feel a little in understanding with him because, to one extent, because of the links she goes to make him seem like a human, even though he's uh, seems horribly mean. Even so, yeah, inhumane is, is one of the things I wrote down about him. Right. Um, but, but more, I think, a couple of things. One, in setting him against Portescue, she allows him, the dancing master, to be a character who believes there's such a thing as change for the better, which, as you said, might have been seen totally as cool at the time, but now seems not great. And yet, presumably, Alexandra, we all want to believe that we can better ourselves. We just don't want to be forced to do it with a rod, forced to better ourselves in only one specific way. Right, and yet, right, in the way that somebody else tells us. But Portescue seems to think there's no betterment. There, there's only this one story that is true, and no one who isn't in this story can be allowed into it. Mm -hmm. So that puts us a bit on the Dancing Master side. There's also... Um, I think about the ending, about how wonderfully confused and tragic and sad the ending feels when Victor, when Victor proves to his master's horror that his nature, after everything, is still pretty wild and dark and free. Yeah. Then the, that moment at the end where he breaks free of all the, of the training it's the structure of the story is so artfully arced towards that. In the first paragraph, Victor is frozen midway through the dance, held locked in fear because he's uh, either cannot remember or cannot perform the next step. And uh, in that moment where you don't know what is going to happen next, she creates in that opening paragraph a sense of anticipation a sense of nervousness that she then delivers on with the final paragraph and the release of Victor uh, back to his presumably true nature. Well, yes. Well, isn't that, isn't that the question? Victorians were obsessed with what nature was. Is it a state of nature? Is it civilization? Who knows? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I'm, I had some nervousness about using that phrase, it's the, the complexity of it and the idea that someone's true nature might be a savage shouldn't be separated from the fact that I think any human's true nature might be to be somewhat savage. Mm. That that just because Victor makes this decision, it shouldn't be seen as something that separates him from the people around him. Yeah, I think um, that while there was a period of time during what I am somewhat anachronistically, probably inaccurately, just referring to Victorian literature, an obsession <laughs> with wild and feral children, um, Tarzan, Jungle Book. There was continuing arguments like Hobbes and Rousseau, these philosophers slightly before Victorian Hobbes talking about the state of nature and Rousseau saying, no, 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 no state of <laughs> nature isn't all that bad. It's great. We are wonderful, innocent beings. And I think the Victorian literature, while it can look pretty... Um, problematic now from a certain point of view i think it was getting at something similar that alexander is really getting at is that, that there is no sense that victor doesn't possess in him both a savagery and a grace 
mm-hmm. and a humanity. There's that great bit where, when the dancing master is trying to teach him about sadness, Victor begins to really get excited, presumably because he's trying to communicate. Yes, this is the way I feel. I feel sad, and the dancing master is entirely what would be seen as savage and cruel there, and gets upset because whatever Victor is trying to communicate about his feelings. He's not doing it in the proper way.、Mm-hmm. So eventually, Victor goes off and cries by himself, and that's another place where we feel a little sympathy with the dancing master because there's something about the way he describes how Victor goes off now to cry in these corners he knows not where, where you can feel his distance from his own feelings. Like、uh-huh. this、uh, story, like a lot of Alexander's stories, is interested in how language and ourselves are scrubbed clean of a kind of emotion. So I think yeah, it's all wrapped up in there. These these characters. Are neither nor, neither or, neither nor. Yeah, sure. Are neither nor. Oh, what? Just as the end of the sentence, I see. Yeah. They're neither neither one thing nor the other. Got it. Uh, so my pick this week is Last by Ali Smith, which is in her collection, the Public Library and Other Stories. It's about uh this woman. I guess it's a woman. I guess I attributed her to being a woman because it's written by a woman, but I don't know that it, the person narrating the story is ever actually gendered. So let's just say it's a woman. Okay. <laughs> Glad I've got over that. <laughs> that right at the right at the top. So it concerns an unnamed narrator who has to leave a train that has broken down outside a station. As she leaves the station and crosses the bridge over the tracks, she looks down and sees a woman in a wheelchair, trapped on the train that she has just left, stuck there while everyone else、um, departed because of the lack of platform. So she couldn't get down from the train, and so the narrator makes her way down towards this, down an unkempt path, through a hole in a bent-back fence. She finds her way down to the train, and it seems like, in wandering away from the expected and usual paths of her life, that she opens up to her own internal stream of consciousness that has been submerged for some reason, that has been silent inside her, and the way this manifests is that. Her interests in words and how they're used reappears. She finds herself wondering about words and their histories and their usages in a way that she says she hasn't done for a very long time. It's like seeing this woman so out of place and helpless and trapped on the train shocks her brain out of whatever kind of narrow,、um, hemmed-in pathway it's been running on for some time and allows it to experience. Other things. The end of this pathway, as she appear, as she arrives at the train and sees the woman, she has this moment of release. This moment where she realizes that the woman is stuck on the train, and she can say anything to her because the woman on the train cannot hear. And her mind roves across the land of opportunity of what it might say, and what it lands on. Is a story about her father and how her father's workshop was down by the train tracks, and how that meant that she spent much of her childhood sitting on the grassy banks at the side of the train tracks, amongst the long grass and the clover. And it's this beautiful moment where you start to kind of understand that, ah,、oh, okay, so maybe it's 
feelings about her father or her past or her childhood that have been blocked up in her and this is the moment that she has to be able to release it and share it with someone in a safe way as i sometimes do i will say let's start at the beginning the first paragraph of this story goes like so i had come to the conclusion i had nothing more to say i had looked in the cupboard and found it was bare i had known in my bones it was over I had reached the end of my tether. I had dug until I'd hit rock bottom. I had gone past the point of no return. I had come to the end of the line. Which, as you might have noticed, uh, kind of all different ways of saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but of course, the, these things are not really the same. And it's only the last one, the truly true one, when she says we've come to the end of the line, that it kind of allows her to escape the next paragraph because she talks about how the train has reached the end of the line. It's like she's finally stumbled on the right words that can set her free. And I think that feeling began to get as something that I found really satisfying in the story uh, for, for me anyway, as someone who loves words and histories and also loves the idea that we are a collection of, uh, of a multiplicity of different selves an abundance of different people inside of us. No real single person uh, strung throughout our life in a direct line. I think of all that because the, there's a moment in the story when the narrator begins to spin in place, raveling loose this, the string of words and histories when she gets obsessed with what she calls traveling etymologies. And one of those etymologies, one of those words she ravels, I'm deliberately not saying unravel because I'm like, whatever, I don't need to say that. That's a word like irregardless. People just got fed up with the fact that ravel didn't sound fancy enough and they made it unravel. Whatever, people. Look it up. Uh, (laughs) She starts out talking about the word clue as the solution to a mystery and how that almost certainly comes from the word for a ball of thread and probably is connected to the big ball of thread that uh, Theseus took into the labyrinth with him to mark his way out. And another moment, like almost right after that, the narrator says of words this, the background murmuring through my head again for the first time in ages was a welcome sound, the sound of the long, thin, never-ending, seeming, rolling stock of words, the sound of life and industry, word after word after word, coupled to each other by tough little iron joists, traveling from the past through the present to the future, like rolling stones that gather moss after all. Oh, and that's where I found the most meaning in the story, which I realize is very connected to what you're talking about, about how her wandering off the path and down to look at this woman took her back to her father. Uh, this, this sense of how the structure of the story, the mention of the history of words, the connection to the thread, it all is this feeling of her finding whatever thread has been there in her life, whatever thread there is, that can take her back that can somehow get her out of the labyrinth, out of the trap, out of spinning in place. And that I love how that just that kind of just shimmers with the feeling that in the way that she says words are stories in themselves, that the way words collect different meanings until becoming somehow almost unrecognizable to the people who used them before, there's a sense that that's how people work as well, that they roll along collecting mm-hmm. all these different meanings and stories. People are really made out of so many different words. It's crazy. I love this story's obsession with words. Um, and it closes out like this. The word last is a very versatile word. Among other more unexpected things, like the piece of metal shaped like a foot, which a cobbler uses to make shoes, it can mean both finality and continuance. It can mean the last time and something a lot more lasting than that. To conclude, once meant to enclose. To tell has at different times meant the following. To express in words, to narrate, 
to explain, to calculate, to count, to order, to give away secrets, to say goodbye. To live in clover means to live luxuriously, in abundance. And when I read that and saw the through line from the clover to the clover, it really broke my heart. Do you want to talk about about why? You know, um, when I was at university, I had a friend who whose father had been a rally car mechanic. And whenever he was feeling, and he hadn't known him well growing up, and whenever he was feeling morose, he this guy would start co- talking about the rally driver and start talking about his career statistics and his the records he'd made and the you know his best races, his worst races, the the last race that he ever drove, and he would only do it when he was drunk and sad, and it was his way of connecting back through to his father who died young. And that kind of way of sidling up to pain that this story does, that that guy did, yeah, that that resonates so much with me because stories are such a beautiful way of being able to talk about the emotions that we can't safely access ourselves. It was the thing I thought about when I was reading uh, the story, which is... This thing uh, Hemingway said once, which was in his his book *Movable Feast*, when he was talking about how to be a writer, uh, which for him was he would get stuck and he'd be like, "This is dumb, I can't write. Writing is stupid." And then he would remind himself uh, that all he needed to do was write one true sentence, and if he wrote one one true sentence, he could write the next one. Uh, and there's something about the beginning of the story, like I read where she's saying all of those things that mean the same thing, where each one is a true sentence. It just happens to be, feels like the same truth over and over again, like she's stuck. Uh, I began to think about the, the word abundance from the end that you, were th- that you uh, quoted and about how the way she moves back and forth between two styles of writing. There is the clip style of that beginning that I read, and in a way the clip style of what you read at the end, where the lines are going junk, 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 junk. And then there, there's bits where she, she wavers off into a completely different style of writing. Uh, like uh, when she first mentioned seeing the woman on the train, uh, the paragraph goes like this. That's how I knew from up here on the slant of the bridge that this train below was the same train I'd just been on. And that's how I could spot exactly the carriage I'd been on. Because that woman in the wheelchair who'd been in the same carriage as me was still there on that empty train. I could see from her that she was, I, I could see from here that she was leaning forward in her chair and beating on the train door with her fist. That's all one sentence. Uh, and then right after she sees her, then uh, the next paragraph where you begin to get the sense that she's trying to distance herself, trying not to help the woman. The sentences start to sound like this. The driver will find her, I thought. Surely they check to make sure their trains are empty. Surely people must fall asleep or be caught on trains like that all the time. Probably she has a mobile and has called people and let them know. It's even possible that she wants to be on that train, that she's meant (laughs) to be on it, there, alone. right? And, And then the sentences are back to that clip sound, that that feeling that they're not rambling, that they're not this long train of words joisted together. And what I loved is that she goes back and forth and back and forth. And then that end that you read, and there's a little bit before that I, a little bit before that I want to read too, um, where she says, in Shakespeare, the word stone can also mean a mirror. 
The word pebble has, in its time, also meant a lens made of rock crystal and a sizable amount of gunpowder. The word mundane comes from mundus, the Latin word for the world. At one time, the word cheer seems to have meant the human face. All right, those sentences are just as clipped as those sentences before about the woman on the train when she was trying to distance herself. But now it feels like she's figured out a way to say one true thing after another in these short, beautiful sentences that contain, with, can contain within their very small space this great deal of abundance and opening. I think opening was... The, such a key part of what you said she uses those words as a way of reopening her eyes to the world or opening up the world yes. to her or literally to do the magic spell that gets the woman off of the train and opens <laughs> her up and back into the world i mean as somebody once said books are the only real magic um last time we talked about kurt vonnegut's story uh what was it called Harrison Bergeron. <laughs> yes, Harrison, Harrison Bergeron. Bergeron. Yes, Harrison Bergeron. Yes, what was it called? Harrison Bergeron. Um, and we talked about the bleakness of it being so perfectly set off by that one moment of beauty as the two characters leap like deer dancing on the moon. <laughs> they just leap like deer on the moon. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. I, just, they were I love how the I love how that sentence became its own image in your mind, where the words aren't exactly what he said, but that is exactly what he said. Right, exactly. In that one sentence, in whatever it was, a six-page story, um, almost overpowers everything else in the way it sits in my mind as well. So yes, the power of of counterpoint and the the way that this story also applies that is that it. It produces a kind of wonderful contrast between the horror and humiliation of being abandoned and unthought of, stuck in a train, left to to who knows what kind of future. Um, it's counterpointed by the boys that appear and the way they share the cigarettes and the fact that the the four of them together enter into becoming this kind of unit whose entire focus is on figuring out a way to get the cigarettes from the outside to the inside of the train and how the woman inside in a wheelchair undertakes this heroic journey to leave herself into the chairs and to reach up with her umbrella to open the window and when it is finally achieved it feels like such a beautiful pinnacle in what could have otherwise or what is otherwise a very bleak experience i uh, that that contrast i was really i really admired yeah I, mean, I think i mean i think what also saves us a bit from the bleak experience is we're in the point of view of someone who for a lot of the time does not seem that interested in the plight <laughs> yeah. of the woman we're not really she's trapped in her with own her. Words. she's yeah. trapped in her own mind yeah um it is one of the issues with stories sometimes that the, the, the main character is going through an internal struggle and you mirror that internal struggle in another character going through an external struggle. So mm. it's like for the main character, it's like, oh, look at that person suffering in real life. Their real life suffering will help me open the door and unlock my internal <laughs> suffering. Awesome. Generous of them to be uh, to suffer for my benefit. Yeah, you can tell. I mean, I share with Sophia Samatar a similar dubiousness about the magic of story sometimes um, yeah. because I totally believe in it. But also, you know, 
Um, so to continue the Vonnegut train, uh, there's this thing George Saunders said once, uh, which is which is this. I'll read you what he said. It's a funny, it's a fun little thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said, I can't speak for anyone else, but my feeling is that you have to first and foremost keep your eye on the fact that your prose has to kick ass. It has to compel and entertain, and your job is to make that happen per your taste. My work first got meaningful when it got entertaining. When I was a kid, I had this Hot Wheels set. A car would approach the, quote, gas station, which was just two spinning rubber wheels that would push the car forward to the next gas station. A story could be thought of as a series of these little gas stations. You want to keep the reader on the track, giving them little pleasure bursts with the goal of pushing them forward toward the end of the story. I love how um, Smith, in the, in the way they constructed, the way she's constructed the story, is that ostensibly all we're doing is going back and forth between two things. But those two things slightly escalate each time, accelerating us on to the next thing. So as soon as she finds the woman on the train, as soon as she sees her, that's when we drift into those etymologies. And part of the reason why we read through the etymology is we want to get back to the woman trapped on the train, because that seemed cool. Mm -hmm. But while we're reading through to get to that moment, uh, Smith is sneaking in all this other stuff that's going to help the woman on the train both mean something and prepare us for the fact that after we meet the woman on the train again, uh, where she's beating on the window to try to get free, we're going to flip back to the memory of the narrator and her father, at which point we're like, well, oh, um, I'm interested in this this father thing, but also that woman is on the train beating on the glass. What's going on there? But by the time we get done with the father thing, we're like, oh, that's cool. I wonder what else we're going to learn about this main character. And then when we come back, those are the, there are those boys you talked about, that mm-hmm. element of freedom that comes wandering in, and that great moment of, of the cigarettes that then takes us on to the next moment. Ah, it's fantastic. A story like this could look so slight if you read it too quickly, but I found it so powerful and so overwhelming in what it uncovers and reveals. It's one of my favourite stories I've read in a really long time. Thanks for listening, readers. We have not uh, discussed all of the stories that exist and all of the different wordy histories of this place we call the world. Nor have we managed to discuss all of the points about these two beautiful, wonderful, deeply wordified stories. So if you want to tell us any other great stories that we should be reading or uh, any other great things we should have been saying, you can find us on Twitter at Storyological. Which is story. Like the word. O. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle. You can follow Emma on Twitter. She is at E.G. Kosh. And you can follow Chris on Twitter. He is at Kuvols. You can find and like us on Facebook if you have not deleted it at facebook.com slash storyological. And if you have enjoyed this episode, and we hope you have, please head on over to your podcast producer, not producer, your podcast... Distributor? Distributor of choice. Platformy uh, place. <laughs> Platformy place, yeah. Um, and leave us a review or some stars because that helps other people find us and we love it when that happens. Or if you really love this episode, uh, you can head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash storylogical, uh, where you can support us at one or two or three or whatever number you'd like to make up, presum- presuming it is a number and is positive. Don't support <laughs> us at a negative amount. A negative amount. amount. That's not great. Uh, uh, if you support us at if you support us at three dollars a month, you'll get a copy of my monthly newsletter where I write about all of my encounters with art in the world and also occasionally kitchen tables or whatnots. 
And of course, for show notes, links to past episodes, including interviews with people like Sophia Samatar or Sam J. Miller, who has a new novel out called Blackfish City, which I believe Emma is reading right I now. I am reading at the moment and loving it. And the continuing cavalcade of appropriate and inappropriate gifts that make the website load slow and those people with browsers that do not handle gifts very well sorry about that <laughs> what it's beautiful i love it it's ridiculous uh you can find all of that at our home on the web storylogical.com thanks for listening happy reading unrelated and so it may not be going in the podcast but uh i love that you said that that sentence that vonnegut wrote um uh, about deers on the moon is what stays in your mind because I think that digs at the conversation we were having about how Vonnegut thinks about hope or romance or illusion I think that there is a bit of magic that as you leave Harrison Bergeron behind what stays with you is that feeling of hope that he conjured in an otherwise entirely bleak and hopeless place